Hello, and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we're talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring a topic in depth to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topic pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. You'll find amazing research and resources on tons of issues. And thanks for your sustaining support. This month, we're looking at the history of scholarship on the Book of Mormon. There was so much content on this that I had to decide to break it up into two episodes. Part one in this episode will cover through the 1990s, a key moment of a real fissure in Book of Mormon scholarship, while part two in next month's episode will go over the 2000s to the present. The Book of Mormon is easily the most important product of the Restoration. It's a narrative that starts in Jerusalem in 600 BCE, a little more than a decade before Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. The protagonist, Lehi, is a prophet enjoined to take his family to a promised land, which ends up being on the American continent. Two of his sons factionalize into the Nephites and the Lamanites, who are locked in a battle for much of the book. But the principal story is about how this group prophesied of Jesus Christ before his birth, and were visited by him after his resurrection. It then tells the story of the destruction of the Nephites and the rise of the Lamanites in the last days who would come to know Jesus Christ through this record. Joseph Smith called it the keystone of our religion. For many, the entire fate of the church stands or falls on the Book of Mormon. This means that one of the key questions has been whether it is a historical record or a product of the 19th century. We're going to think a bit about how this binary has structured the scholarship around the Book of Mormon, driving critical and apologetic efforts alike. And there have been many efforts to break this impasse. The nature of the Book of Mormon has also been bound up with another of Joseph Smith's translation projects, the Book of Abraham. I go over this story in a previous episode, but long story short, the original manuscripts of the Book of Abraham were rediscovered in the 1960s and were not related to Joseph Smith's translation at all, thus calling into question again the nature of the Book of Mormon translation. It's worth pointing out that scholarship on the Book of Mormon has not only happened in dialogue. In the 1980s and 1990s, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies innovated new apologetic scholarship, which lives on today in the form of Book of Mormon Central. There is a journal of Book of Mormon studies, once housed at the old farms and now a central feature of the Neil A. Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. There are also new scholarly societies dedicated to the Book of Mormon. 
We've also begun to see articles and books in non-Mormon journals and academic presses. So this vast landscape of scholarship means that a survey of dialogue, as robust as the material may be found there, is still partial. I'll try my best to contextualize the broader trends, but even in all of this sea of scholarship, I was consistently surprised at the high-quality, important pieces that have been published in dialogue up through today. Get ready for a wild ride. Setting the scene. Dialogue is founded in 1966, but it isn't until 1968 that we see the first article dedicated to the Book of Mormon. But Book of Mormon scholarship was undergoing some pretty serious innovations already before that time. A couple of important figures and trends to mention. First is B.H. Roberts, a leading intellectual in the early 20th century who began to take seriously criticism of the Book of Mormon. Next is Sidney Sperry, a BYU professor trained in biblical studies at the University of Chicago, also in the early 20th century. He'd written a number of important articles talking about how historical critical biblical studies intersected with the Book of Mormon, from its use of Paul and other New Testament material to Second Isaiah and more. The other is Hugh Nibley, a classicist trained at UC Berkeley who began writing in the 1950s articles that set the Book of Mormon in an ancient Near Eastern context. This culminated in the 1957 Priesthood Manual for use in the entire church, an approach to the Book of Mormon by Hugh Nibley. Back then, before anonymous correlated manuals, the church commissioned trained scholars and intellectuals to write the curriculum. Anyway, these major trends of thinking about the Book of Mormon in a critical historical context, primarily to defend it and even vindicate its historicity, were already exciting established trends long before a dialogue came on the scene. But the first article published in Dialogue actually takes a different tack. Wilson Douglas's 1968 article, Prospects for the Study of the Book of Mormon as a Work of American Literature, comes at the book in an entirely different way. You'll recall that Gene England, one of the founders of Dialogue, came from a literature background, and literature scholarship was an important part of this new endeavor of Dialogue. Wilson was a non-Latter-day Saint scholar of literature and a relatively important scholar of the period. He talked about how the Book of Mormon is difficult to read. Its concerns are not the concerns of the 20th century readers, but it's nevertheless important and deserves serious study by scholars of American literature. He suggests that scholars begin with theologically neutral textual criticism, now a robust field in Book of Mormon studies, but then non-existent. He then suggests myth criticism as a framework for analysis. But he says this is just the beginning. A brief comment on this. Literary approaches have always been a small subset of the scholarship, but have grown increasingly important in Book of Mormon studies. Still, I recall sitting in a Harvard seminar room with Richard Bushman, speaking to various scholars, making the case for the Book of Mormon as a work of American literature. This conversation was weighty, but one missionary who happened to hear about the talk and come visit then bore his testimony that it was not an American book, but an ancient one because of chiasmus. 
It was an awkward moment that illustrated the resistance within some quarters of the LDS community to including the Book of Mormon as an object of study and probably reinforced concerns that such scholars in the room might have harbored. So more than 50 years after Wilson's plea, this remains a controversial appeal. In the summer of 1969, a new article examined an interesting, initially promising approach to New World archaeology, a project that included Latter-day Saints interested in locating a context for the Book of Mormon. But in the mid-1960s, there was a broader popular theory in non-LDS circles of ancient contacts between the Near Eastern and American peoples. A roundtable in this issue examines some of these early efforts. In the 1950s, Thomas Ferguson founded the New World Archaeological Foundation, which was incorporated into BYU and the church under the direction of Elder Howard W. Hunter. This first official apologetic project wasn't a particularly successful venture and often led to professional embarrassment. This hypothesis has not held up over the past 50 years, but the entries in this roundtable capture some of the enthusiasm that was prevalent in this period for some trustworthy historical connection. Still, there were some important long-term outcomes for this project. But what might surprise readers is how much myth-busting is going on here, even in the 1960s, challenging the amateurish ideas that had often taken hold in LDS circles. One of the earliest important figures here is John L. Sorensen. In his first dialogue entry, he lays out the hypothesis of a Central American anthropological and archaeological context for the Book of Mormon, and he draws a number of parallels from pyramids to incense to sacrifices that link the Book of Mormon peoples to those of the ancient world. In fall of 1969, there were a few more entries. Robert E. Nichols Jr. wrote, Beowulf and Nephi, a literary view of the Book of Mormon. He notes the same challenges to the literary scholar, the lack of a source text and of a text-critical edition of the Book of Mormon. But still, he attempts to offer a literary reading of First and Second Nephi, perhaps the first one ever. He concludes, quote, The Book of Mormon remains a challenging critical prize, undoubtedly the major prize of 19th century Americana, perhaps the chief prize of the literature we call English. That call for a textual study of the Book of Mormon finally came to fruition in 1977. Stan Larson was the first to offer a text-critical study in Textual Variants in Book of Mormon Manuscripts. Since then, so much more has been done, especially by the backbreaking work of Royal Skousen, to establish a workable text-critical edition. But Larson paved the way by looking at the 146 pages of the original manuscript, held mostly by the LDS Church, the 464 pages of the printer's manuscript, held by the RLDS Church, as it was known then, and others. Larson worked for the Translation Services Department of the LDS Church and was an important figure in 1970s Book of Mormon scholarship. Now, textual variants were well-known in theory. Anti-Mormon literature, including that of Gerald and Sandra Tanner, had frequently noted the substantive changes to the text, not only in early manuscripts, but also in later printed editions. Apologists had engaged these arguments, but there hadn't really been a systematic study. Larson divides them into four categories. Corrections of mistakes, clarifications, corrections that were better left unmade, and mistakes in the manuscripts. 
he works through about 50 textual variants here between the original and printer's manuscripts. So the bulk of scholarship in the first decade or so of Dialogue's treatment of the Book of Mormon was laying the foundation for a literary approach, one that was especially interested in the text as text, in narrative criticism, and more. The apologetic arguments with anti-Mormons and the failed archaeological approaches were given some small attention, but dialogue authors, LDS and non-LDS alike, were making a different case for the Book of Mormon as a work of important and even great English literature. But the schism in scholarship was only just heating up. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 2. Farms versus Dialogue. With the demise of earlier apologetic efforts at the New World Archaeology Institute, The approach that Hugh Nibley had laid out inspired a whole new generation of apologists interested in establishing the Book of Mormon in the Old World. I'll just point out the Eurocentrism and colonial frameworks of the New World versus Old World labels, but I'm reproducing them here because those were the ones that they were using. Jack Welch, among others, was part of this movement and founded Farms in 1979 to become a hub for this kind of scholarship. Farms grew in the early 1980s at BYU when Welch moved there in 1980 and established it as a place to defend the Book of Mormon. He also had published his edited volume on Chiasmus, an ancient literary form, in 1981. Some of the early dialogue contributors, like John L. Sorensen, flocked to Farms. They soon tried to position themselves as the Center for Book of Mormon Research. One of their targets was a man named George Smith, who was a freelance historian and financial wizard working in San Francisco. He's the founder of Signature Books. In 1983, George Smith published an article, Isaiah Updated. He discusses a problem that had been earlier mentioned by B.H. Roberts and Sidney Sperry, among others, The problem in brief was this. Scholars no longer accepted the unity of the book of Isaiah, nor attributed it all to the historical Isaiah. 
The problem was that the later chapters seemed to come from a later prophet, nicknamed Second Isaiah, who wrote during the Babylonian exile, namely after Lehi had reportedly left Jerusalem. The problem is that this text, which didn't exist until after Lehi was on a boat sailing to the New World, somehow ends up in Nephi's record. This paper goes into a lot more issues about Christian and LDS interpretation of Isaiah more generally, challenging the validity of these supposed prophecies. Defenders of the Book of Mormon argued that the evidence should be read the other way around, that the Book of Mormon provided clear evidence that 2nd Isaiah was pre-exilic and that Isaiah is a unified text. Smith's article called into question these claims. This article got a lot of attention in letters, including from apologist Bill Hamblin. In 1984, George Smith had another important article. Quote, Is there any way to escape these difficulties? The Book of Mormon Studies of B.H. Roberts. As mentioned before, Roberts was a member of the Quorum of the Seventy and a leading intellectual in the church. Beginning in the 1920s, he began to seriously examine the arguments around Book of Mormon historicity, but became skeptical of many of those same arguments. For a while, before George Smith's article, the debate was whether Roberts was expressing his own doubts or merely laying out the best versions of the counter-arguments to the Book of Mormon. Roberts seemed to have been persuaded that there were significant, meaningful parallels between the Book of Mormon and Ethan Smith's A View of the Hebrews, a 19th century fictional account that predates the Book of Mormon, but also tells a story of Israelite lineage of Native Americans. Roberts also covers the archaeological difficulties, and Smith discusses these as well. A lot has changed since the 1920s, but not that much, and the core issues that Roberts faced remained important through the 1980s. This article, too, attracted negative attention from farms, since Jack Welch had advised dialogue against publishing it. His connections to Elder Neil A. Maxwell may explain why this otherwise benign piece ended up in a memo by Elder Maxwell advising that John Sorensen be commissioned to, quote, respond to the recent ramblings of George Smith. He issued a memo in the fall of 1984, then commissioning, quote, a scholarly defense of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. The Enzyme published Sorensen's essays, Digging into the Book of Mormon, Parts 1 and 2, a few months later, and many saw that as a rebuke of George Smith specifically. That same year, Sorensen published his classic book, An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon. In the summer of 1985 issue, George Smith writes a letter to the editor at Dialogue, responding to John Sorensen, challenging some of the revisionist apologetics, limited geography, and the idea that there were other people already in the land beside the Book of Mormon people. Robert Smith, another apologist in this time period, responds with a caustic letter back. This went back and forth in the letters to the editor section for a while. Spring and summer 1986 have pro-Sorensen letters on geography and animals, for instance. George Smith's pretty mild criticisms of Book of Mormon historicity became a particular target for farms over these early years, and they increasingly went after him personally. Bill Hamblin, Daniel Peterson, Louis Midgley, Robert Smith, and others were involved. 
As I mentioned, George Smith was the founder of Signature Books, and the conflicts between these two presses, Farms and Signature, dominated more than a decade of Mormon intellectual energy. In the fall of 1984, Grant Underwood wrote a really important article, Book of Mormon Usage in Early LDS Theology. Now, this research has since been updated and nuanced, but Underwood made a fascinating observation about early LDS citations of the Book of Mormon. They are actually very rare in the LDS periodicals up through 1846, even to the point of what he called neglect of the Book of Mormon. Underwood's argument was an interesting intervention in two ways. First, a number of LDS scholars were looking to the Book of Mormon to understand early LDS doctrinal development. It's notable that the theology of the Book of Mormon departs from mainstream LDS teachings on a number of points, and people began to argue that it represented an earlier Joseph Smith, for instance. Underwood's argument challenged this by suggesting that the Book of Mormon had minimal use or impact on early LDS thought in general, let alone doctrinal development. Second, this absence of the Book of Mormon was implicitly contrasted with the modern church, where the Book of Mormon was quickly outpacing the Bible in importance after Ezra Taft Benson had really centered it. Whether good or ill, the Book of Mormon was treated rather casually in Smith's day, including by Smith himself. What was important when it was cited was the millenarian ideas in the Book of Mormon. This is what we call reception history, which looks at how a text has been received. Different from George Smith's study of B.H. Roberts, Underwood was expanding this kind of research to statistical analysis of the use of the Book of Mormon by Latter-day Saints. So the early 1980s was still a time when diverse voices and approaches appeared in dialogue, especially the letters to the editor back and forth. But hostility was also increasing from a vocal and forceful faction who believed they had apostolic sanction for their tactics. It's the early phases of what is going to become known as the Book of Mormon Wars. Mom had the loudest voice and strongest opinions in the household. It's impossible to feel the spirit in these episodes. From there, it was the grim weeper. How could you have done this to me, to us? That may sound blasphemous, but it's true. She was determined and committed to her sometimes eccentric opinions. Meanwhile, I'm wondering who's this wonderful fairy tale us he's talking about. Most of my mixed state experiences are channeled into a prayer to my Heavenly Father to please send help. Please take me out of this. Please show me a sign that you still love me. No, of course not. That's why I'm here. I'm willing to do whatever to make things right. This is Dialogue Out Loud, a curated selection of fiction and essays from the pages of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, brought to life through voice and music. I feel entirely alone in a permanent night, blocked from sunlight by the wall of earth that is my chemical imbalance. My parents were persuaded that this was not just an adolescent whim and allowed me to be baptized, three days shy of my 19th birthday. Oh, he'll hold my hand in sacrament meeting and take me by the arm and open the car door and do all that chivalrous Sir Walter Raleigh stuff in public. But safe at home, I'm invisible. 
This year, we're bringing you even more great audio stories from our quarterly journal, including pieces by Neil David Sylvester, Linda Hoffman Kimball, Monica Crowfoot, and more. Subscribe to the Dialogue Podcast to keep up on our latest episodes or go to dialoguejournal.com for this and more great audio content. That's dialoguejournal.com. Breaking Past Apologetics As I mentioned, apologetics is really heating up with two major camps. One who is arguing for ancient contexts for the Book of Mormon, and the other arguing for a 19th century context. Fortunately, scholars had been looking at different approaches altogether in the pages of dialogue all along from reception history to literary studies to textual studies. But these battles were being fought here too and sucked up a lot of attention. So I want to discuss a few classics that all students of Book of Mormon should know that were an early attempt to get past the hostility and find some common ground and shared solutions. First is Bruce Lindgren's Sign or Scripture, Approaches to the Book of Mormon from Spring 1986. I love this one so much. It's by an RLDS scholar who says that maybe this whole debate about which context we need to read the Book of Mormon is wrongheaded. This is reading it as a history book. Quote, why does discussion of the Book of Mormon typically tend to focus on questions of historicity and authorship? on Mesoamerican archaeology, chiasmus, and word prints. This sees the Book of Mormon as a sign of Joseph Smith's prophetic call or his status as a fraud, but that's a pretty narrow way of reading it. Instead, Lincoln issues a challenge to focusing on historicity in Book of Mormon interpretation and instead says that we should read it as scripture. Quote, I find a more personally relevant question to be, how does the Book of Mormon present the basic doctrines of the gospel? What role should the Book of Mormon play in our religious and intellectual lives? Is it a sign of the divine origin of the restoration? Or is it scripture? There has grown up a whole school of thought around this latter approach in Book of Mormon theology now, especially from Jim Faulkner, who says that history is the wrong genre for understanding scripture. But we see here this early treatment in 1986. The next article is from spring 1987, Book of Mormon as Modern Expansion of an Ancient Source. Here, Blake Osler weighs in on the historicity question and attempts to cut the Gordian knot with a hybrid solution. He uses source criticism, a method that attempts to separate out distinct underlying sources in a single document, this is one of the classical methods in biblical studies here applied in a distinctive way to the Book of Mormon. Osler argued that the plates were real, that the Nephites were real, but that Joseph Smith drew on his own experience in the narrative. In this way, he could grant the best of the ancient parallels and the best of the 19th century parallels to argue that there was a base text as an ancient source but also that it catalyzed new revelation 
for the modern day through Joseph Smith as translator. That is, a modern expansion of an ancient source. Osler conceded that there were a number of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, especially related to theological ideas, but he also found value in ancient parallels to rituals, ancient prophetic practices, and more. This approach was obviously hated by many who were invested on either side of this, but it has grown in popularity with a number of contemporary believing scholars who subscribe to the basic premise. The details of analysis have continued to be debated, disputing the validity of the various parallels that he discusses, but Osler's solution remains a useful survey for some of the major arguments from his time. Sometimes in this period, we saw more close exegetical readings of specific passages, especially those that loomed large in popular LDS culture. Ezekiel 37, which discusses the sticks of Judah and the sticks of Joseph, was one such case. In 1990, Brian Keck wrote, Ezekiel 37, Sticks and Babylonian Writing Boards, a critical appraisal, where he explained what those passages meant in their ancient context. We weren't done with the B.H. Roberts story either. Brigham Madsen, a professor at Utah State, wrote in 1993, B.H. Roberts' studies of the Book of Mormon. Was Roberts a believer or a skeptic? Madsen offers more insights into how B.H. Roberts dealt with his questions about Book of Mormon historicity, and he offers new historical details to the drama around his story. So there were articles that were challenging traditional history or interpretations of the Book of Mormon in these years, but I think that in the late 1980s, this is a really important period. This brief moment showed sincere and serious efforts to bridge the growing gap between scholarly camps, but it was an unsuccessful and short-lived one. An attempt to find a middle way for believers that could also accommodate the arguments from critics seemed to satisfy no one, least of all the apologists. The war was raging on. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 4, Book of Mormon Wars. It's worth mentioning briefly that there were a bunch of important edited volumes that came out during these years. In 1982, Farms had published one of its first volumes, edited by Noel Reynolds, Book of Mormon Authorship, New Light on Ancient Origins. In 1990, Signature Books published The Word of God, Essays on Mormon Scripture, edited by Dan Vogel. They followed up in 1993 with an edited volume by Brent Lee Metcalf, New Approaches to the Book of Mormon, Explorations in Critical Methodology. These then sparked further, often hostile, exchanges with apologists 
in the Farm's review of books on the Book of Mormon, one of the low points for decorum from BYU authors who often substituted personal attack and credential waving for actual argument. In winter of 1991, Neil Chandler publishes Book of Mormon Stories That My Teacher Kept From Me. Quote, it may be no more than a kind of perversity that brings me to admit what I will tell you now, namely that when it comes to the Book of Mormon, the most correct of books whose pedigree we love passionately to debate and whose very namesakes we have all of us become, I stand mostly with Mark Twain. I think it's chloroform in print. It's a humorous but serious critique of the Book of Mormon that got him in some trouble. Quote, this is a book of men, by men, for men, and openly and conventionally at least, about men only. This got a letter sent to his bishop and stake president that made him not allowed to speak in church anymore. Latter-day Saint folks were more bold to speak out and even say potentially offensive things, not just air the history in this period. A 1993 article by Brentley Medcalf also came back to the basic assumptions of competing schools of Book of Mormon scholarship. In Apologetic and Critical Assumptions about Book of Mormon Historicity, Metcalf pointed out how these positions valued historicity differently. For traditionalists, historicity was necessary for value and authenticity. For critical approaches, religious value was independent from historicity. But the real meat of this paper is in the analysis of the methodologies and standards of proof. He goes through a few key examples, from metal plates to geography, with the limited geography model paying strict attention to descriptions of travel, but not to animals or chiasmus. Metcalf also provides some interesting assessment of Osler's expansion theory and some of the early bibliography responding to it. Metcalf challenges the theory by saying that if you think that anti-Masonry of the Book of Mormon is an anachronism, as Osler did, then you must also think that the idea that Native Americans originating from ancient Israelites is also a common 19th century idea. Thus, the entire historical claim of the book itself is also an anachronistic modern concept. So Metcalf was obviously in the critical side of the spectrum but provides a great discussion of what he saw as an interpretive starting point, Joseph Smith's own teachings and understandings as comparison documents for the Book of Mormon. The response to this article and Metcalf's book from the same year was not great. Signature had threatened to sue Farms for defaming some of its authors by calling them anti-Mormon. Bill Hamlin encoded a message, Metcalf is butthead, in a farm's newsletter. These events and exchanges were spilling out past the pages of dialogue, signature, sunstone, and farms, and into the popular press who was interested in this rancorous exchange. A lengthy book review in the winter of 1994 issue of Dialogue of Metcalf's book and the 556 pages of responses in the 1994 Farms Review of Books provides a useful summary and fair assessment of the issues. It also polarized the publication venues. Dialogue had run into some trouble with church leaders in 1993 when things culminated with the excommunication of several authors associated with Dialogue and Signature Books. 
Though dialogue had always been and remains open to publishing more conservative voices, those authors flocked to venues seen as safer. That left a smaller group of people submitting and publishing in dialogue. Quinn Brewster's 1996 article, The Structure of the Book of Mormon, A Theory of Evolutionary Development, discusses an interesting problem. Why does the structure of the Book of Mormon change throughout the book? The book itself addresses this issue with the large and small plates source material, and early revelations talk about the crisis of the lost portion of translation, and Brewster develops a theory for why this occurs. Later, in 1996, Mark D. Thomas, Scripture Studies Editor for Dialogue for a while, published A Mosaic for a Religious Counterculture, the Bible in the Book of Mormon. It's an interesting article, arguing that the Book of Mormon needs to be understood as countercultural because of its anti-elitist stance. But it's also the central issue of this article, which tackles how the Book of Mormon uses the Bible for its own purposes. It looks at a number of intertexts between the Bible and the Book of Mormon to show how they are used as a mosaic, small pieces that together tell a larger story. In 1997, Brigham Madsen's Reflections on LDS Disbelief in the Book of Mormonist History also generated a lot of controversy. He drew on the research for his earlier work on B.H. Roberts in the Book of Mormon, but just made the case that the Book of Mormon wasn't historical at all. The problems that Roberts had first wrestled with had not been resolved, and the case had actually gotten worse, not better, with more research. But he wants to make space in the church for those who doubt the historicity of the Book of Mormon as a matter of research, but who still want to belong to the faith, decrying the standards of orthodoxy that precluded the different interpretations of existing evidence. The final article that I'll discuss in this section is David Wright's Joseph Smith's Interpretation of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Wright is a well-known biblical scholar and former Latter-day Saint, who left BYU under pressure for his teaching of biblical scholarship and perhaps his views on the Book of Mormon. He was a contributor to the 1993 Metcalf volume, New Approaches to the Book of Mormon. This article provides an essential study of the Isaiah problem in the Book of Mormon, its use of post-exilic elements of the text from a different approach. Instead, Wright looks at how Isaiah is being used he showed the dependence of the Book of Mormon Isaiah on the King James Version of the Bible, but looks at how specific passages from Isaiah are used throughout the Book of Mormon, especially in Isaiah 48 and 49 about the return of Israel from Babylonian captivity, as well as Isaiah 29, a classic proof text used as a prophecy for the Book of Mormon. He then locates the interpretations of the Book of Mormon within the broader history of interpretation. The quality of the articles we've looked at is excellent, even though much of them now feel a little dated. But it's hard to look back on the twists and turns that Book of Mormon scholarship was taking during this period without some wistful hope that things might have turned out differently. My sense is that there was huge damage done to the field by the alienation of these different camps, which not only damaged feelings, relationships, and even careers, some ongoing for those involved in this fight, but ultimately damaged the field when the stakes were set so high and the gloves off. I think it's a sad chapter, and the effects still haunt us three decades later. 
There were a lot of great studies that come out of all of this, and I'm sure that the intensity of the battle helped to refine some of the scholarship, but the costs otherwise seem to have been too great. I look forward to later periods that we will discuss, including the present, when some of these wounds heal and the founding principles of dialogue, a community of those who listen and speak with equal rigor, comes to prevail. So that takes us up through the 1990s, the most serious decades of the Book of Mormon Wars. They weren't over by any means, but this seems like a good place to pause. In the next episode, we'll pick up the story and bring it up to the present. I was amazed at just how much and how good the Book of Mormon scholarship was in these decades, including some of the new work that's about to drop in the fall and winter 2021 issues of Dialogue. Tune in next month to learn more. Thank you for taking this journey with me and for taking the journey through Dialogue Journal and for all of your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media managers are Adam McLean and Calvin Burke. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3, with support from Mary Thieves. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and art and culture. And we've been growing like wildfire with tons of new shows like Fireside with Blair Hodges, At Last She Said It, Bristlecone Firesides, Strangers No More, Funeral Potatoes at the Singles Ward, and more. Check out all the new shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Thank you.